2020 is upon us. If you're my age or older, um, you would have watched a programs on the television or films on the television that would project ahead to the year 2020 um, as being this awesome, utopic future place that, were, would, that would, where loads of the problems uh, would be resolved. Uh, there were pretty bad films now when you look back, but the idea that we would be, everybody in the, if you can remember these films, particularly through the 70s and 80s, everybody would look smashing in this kind of space sort of suit materials and uh, we'd be harvesting minerals on some distant planets, we'd be f flying around in really cool cars. It was that, that was the future hope for 2020. And it even, I think some of that comes around because it, it feels like the coolest sounding year we've had for a long time, doesn't it? 2020 just sounds cool. So when you're looking back from the 70s, you projected forward to 2020 and there was this sense of, oh, the world will have figured it out by then and it'll be awesome and it'll be cool. Interesting, um, had a bit of time to reflect on 2019 over Christmas via Twitter and you know just catching up with everything that everybody's saying about 2019. The Queen in her speech, I don't know if you noticed this, described it as a bumpy, yeah, in typical Queen sort of language. It was a bit bumpy. Twitter uh, was a bit more scathing, a bit more ruthless and a bit darker. Uh, there was a hashtag um, 2019 in five words. I'm going to share a few of those um, with you. The first, the first one of those five words, or maybe you'll stop to think who, who would have written these. Maybe you've seen them, or maybe you can... And when I, when I searched through Twitter, Twitter, I went thinking, I wonder what they'll say, and I didn't have to scroll very far, and it's Twitter. So there is some really funny ones, people just being idiots, but the majority of them... We're in this kind of vein. So this is Greta Thunberg's take on 2019. She just says, our house is on fire. So the next one down, the very next one was, this was just a regular guy, his five words, bereavement, illness, redundancy, pension reduction, and deceit. Uh, next one, India has a, a rape problem. 15,000 innocents killed in Iran. And then another, another five words that were relating to the Iran story was, we will hunt down your murderer. And the next one, buy less rubbish, save earth. I wonder, as I scrolled through Twitter, I wonder what your, wonder what your five words would be to describe 2019. I wonder how joyous they'd be if you were being really honest. Mine were... Confused, vulnerable, hatred, terror, and tired. Those were my five words. Don't know what yours would have been. It was, it was a bumpy year, wasn't it? It was a dark year. The darkness still exists. And whatever your five words were, you would probably say that we didn't reach the 2020 utopia that maybe we thought we might reach back, back in the day. The new solutions that have come have all brought new problems in that time span. The new boundaries that we've drawn up, the new national boundaries that we've tried to figure out, the new philosophies that we've had in our heads, the, the new technologies that we've come up with, the better communications, the more information that we've had, all of this stuff, like really cool, awesome stuff, has brought with it new problems. Social media can get you a perfect partner from the other end of the world 
but it destroys at the same time the confidence of thousands, thousands upon thousands of teenage lives every day as they look at their profile pics and everything else. Tweets can start Me Too revolutions across the world at the same time as they can start off a nuclear arms race. The new solutions that we've come up with, brilliant though they are, have not caused us to reach utopia. And as we look back on 2019, as we look back, look ahead to 2020, you'd say it's still a, it's still a dark place. It still feels pretty vulnerable. You still flick the news on there'll be a story about Iran or the fires in Australia, or you think through your own personal circumstance, it still feels vulnerable. How do we face 2020? How do we look out onto this next decade? Because we've got no idea, I don't think, what it's going to bring. One of the ways that we often deal with it as people is we ignore it. We live on this nice little island and we can just sort of cloud it out. We can distract ourselves. We can fill our minds with the awesome TV series that are on. We can drink. We can concentrate on the house and the career. Or we can just, we can just look to the rest of our days and think maybe we can just avoid it. Maybe all this darkness and this bad stuff that's out there, maybe we can just get, we, maybe we'll get to the end of our days. That's a bit of a life plan, isn't it, for some of us? Let's just try and get to the end. Maybe I can just dodge my way through this life, get to the end of my days and have not encountered any of this. I think, as I look at you lot, as I look at me, as I look at me particularly, what we need looking out to the next 10 years in this vulnerable, pretty dark world is not a strategy for dodging the trauma that's going to come. I don't think that'll work in the end. We need to know a God that'll get us through. The dodging won't work, won't work for 10 years, won't work forever. We need a God who can get us through and hold on to us and get us through. So what I want to share with you real quick is the words of a man, if you can pop the text back up on the screen, the words of a man who looked out at this messed up world and he remembered a way through it. He gives us a few things to focus on, and I hope that they will be a help to you in 2020. So Psalm 3 is the first psalm where the little subheading above gives us a little bit of context to the psalm. And it says at the top of the psalm, and it's very helpful. Not all the psalms do this. You read some of them, you think, I'm not 100% sure what's going on here. But if you read Psalm 3, the little subheading above it says something like, David flees from his son Absalom. David David's on the run, uh, basically. If you read back the corresponding story in Samuel, that's where Psalm 3 is based. That's when David pens these words. David's life basically goes from just about as awesome, I think, as life can get to rock bottom. So this, I'll take you back from when he sees the Bathsheba on the roof. Maybe you know the story of David and Bathsheba. David sees this beautiful woman on the, on the roof and totally blows it, loses, loses himself and takes advantage of this woman. And God's chosen man, Nathan, comes to him and he says, there's going to be a consequence for this. There's got to be a consequence for this. And there is a consequence. And his son Absalom takes against him and he spends the next four years plotting his dad's downfall. He stands at the gate of the city of Jerusalem and just talks bad about his dad. And he organizes a bit of a coup. 
And then he comes back one day with this army that he's gathered against his father and chases his dad out of town. And David goes from being the, you know, the king of Israel with everything at his feet, this beautiful life, to have been a guy who's on the run. And as you read through the story, basically anybody who comes across can take advantage of him. The king of Israel is just, is this guy who's on the run, everybody's after him, and he's completely vulnerable. And as he looks back up at the world, he sees sort of the leadership structure all messed up. You know, he's, he sees every circumstance he could encounter is, is a threat to him. And yet, in this moment, a bit like us, as we look out at 2020, in this moment, he realizes something. He remembers, perhaps, something. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, and this is the thing he realizes, you, O Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. Now, maybe you look back at the story of David and you say, I think you learned that when you fought that giant. I think you learned that God was where the strength was then. I thought you did. And as you sort of read through the story, you say to yourself, well, maybe you forgot in the days of luxury in the palace. Maybe that lesson was a bit lost on him. But as, as he's on the run, this is the story, as he's on the run, as everybody's chasing in on him, as the world just looks like it's completely upside down, David remembers that ultimately the real source of strength in the world is with God. And if he has that, then he's going to be okay. I think when we look at our lives, having God in the picture, having a sense of God and what God means, gives us a different perspective on life. We think, in a lot of ways, a life win might well be dodging our way to 100 years old and not ever encountering this bad world. We maybe think that that's a good strategy for life. But if God is real, if he shapes the world, if he orchestrates everything, if we are actually eternal beings, then really all that matters, all that matters is knowing him. That is the thing that matters. That is the thing that will get you through. And that becomes the most important thing, whether your life's rosy as or whether it's terrible. It kind of doesn't matter because the most important thing, the crucial thing is, are you going to have an experience? This is, this is kind of, as I look out on behalf of us, 2020, David has this moment where all his life's gone completely pear-shaped and he's vulnerable to everything and yet he describes, I think in verse 6 or 7, having the best night's sleep of his life. He says, I can, I can, even in this, I can put my head down and I sleep soundly knowing that God will wake me up. Even with everybody against me, even in the turmoil of this, I found this. I'll lie down and sleep. I'll wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. He has this moment where he goes, actually, yes, this, and this is, I guess, what the story show, shows us, and this is what I hope for us. It sounds pretty cruel. I don't, I don't actually hope that you get to the end of your days dodging all the bad stuff that might happen, never really thinking about it, if it means that you don't get to know this, if you don't get to have this moment that David has, where he says, oh yeah, actually the strength for life is in my God. That would be my hope as you look out. Flourishing at life, it's not about dodging life's difficulty. 
but it's learning about the sufficiency of God in the difficult times. So, God's like a shield. What do you do with information like that? How do you process that? How do you make that helpful? Do you get, do you get the shield and you stick it on your wall? Is that going to be useful? No, you, don't. you put it on, don't you? What does it look like to be somebody who actively trusts in God for his provision? I just want to give you, I think David gives us two things in these verses of the kind of person who recognizes that God's the person that's going to get them through. God's the thing that's going to get them through despite life circumstances. He gives us two kind of ways to own that and do that. The first thing is to be somebody who cries out to God. See it there in verse 4? David says, I cry out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy hill. That's not just a metaphorical cry out. The inference is that there's a grown man, probably in his 40s or something like that, who's on the hillside, literally, verbally, screaming out to the heavens that God will come and help him. I don't know about you, I've, I've been surrounded by, um, over Christmas and New Year, little, little babies, lots of little babies, I'm getting worse and worse at remembering all these little babies' names, um, but been surrounded by these little babies, and I really envy, this is really pathetic admission, I've really grown to envy the way that they can just scream out do you know what I mean? Something's not quite right. My bum's a bit wet. I'm a bit uncomfortable. I'm a bit tired. And you can just go, like that. Do you know? And I've come to, I've, I thought that would be amazing. I would look every now and again. I just love not to have to explain myself, just to have somebody in my life who I can just go, like that. And they're going to take the time to deal with me and, and organize me. But, but why do babies cry out? They can't do anything can they? They can't do anything for themselves. They need help. And we don't cry out as adults, unlike I've just done, we don't cry out as adults unless we're completely lost. Or unless we look at the world and feel completely lost. Or we're drowning off the shore of the East Coast somewhere. Then, in those moments, we'll, we'll scream out, won't we? Because we realized that we're helpless and we realize that we're going to need somebody to come and save us. I think being somebody who recognizes who God is, praying in a really honest way, recognizes who God is and recognizes you're really scuppered without him. That's what, I, that's what it is to recognize who God is. It's somebody who's in the spot where they go, oh man, actually, somebody who's clocked that, who's gone, oh, actually, I'm really, I'm really stuck without God. And he's the one that can help me. I don't, sometimes prayer can be a bit like, did you ever watch Mork and Mindy? I used to love Mork and Mindy, and that's going to eliminate, like, if you're below 40, that's going to eliminate loads of people. But Mork used to basically just kind of check in with this alien being. That was Mork, Mork calling Austin. He used to just check in with him. Sometimes our prayer life, Feels like we just do that, don't we? We clock, we clock, we clock up, and we just go, "Yeah, this is happening. This is happening, God." And this is a bit tough. Would you keep an eye on them? And the people in Africa, would you look out for them? And prayer, just sometimes it's like checking in from Earth with God. And I think God looks down and sees us absolutely lost without Him. And we even feel absolutely confused and beaten up and vulnerable by the whole world, and yet we just check in with God. I think. The way that we let God own us, the way that we recognize who he is, the first thing we do is we find ourselves in a position where we, we don't just check in with God. 
we cry out. We get to that spot where we go, yeah, without you I'm lost. And I recognize that you're the one that can help me. And our prayers aren't monotone, drab chats, checking in. They become screams, the screams of a baby who knows that the help comes from the parents. That's the first thing we cry out. Second thing we do is kind of the opposite of crying out. I think this is what the Christian life is. One hand, it's a cry out. The second thing it is, is it's complete rest in his provision. See what he says in verse 5 and 6. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because he sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. You see what David is able to do in this circumstance, even in this war zone, with this world of turmoil above his head? He just... He glories in the fact that he can still nod off to sleep. I'm somebody who struggles a bit with sleep, and it really annoys me sometimes when I encounter people who can just nod off and just completely disappear into the haze of sleep. How hard is it nowadays? How hard is it to get yourself into a position where you just, you're willing to acknowledge that everything's going to be all right, and you don't have to try and you don't have to say, stay switched on. How hard is that these days? It's so hard, isn't it? The boss has got demands of you. You've got the neighbors to keep up with you. You've got a mortgage to pay. Switching off, relaxing, having trust in another being, it's so hard to do, and yet so liberating to do and so essential for us to do, to become people that can just say or realize that God has got this in his hands. Two things God asks us, two ways that we can show that we trust who God is, that we scream out to him and that we rest in who he is. It's the 20s. We're in the 20s again. I was talking to somebody, I think I was talking to Martin before, and I feel like I, I, feel like I know where I am with the 20s. I feel like the noughties, I don't really know what that was. The, the 10s or the teenies, I don't really know what that was, but the, the 20s, the roaring 20s, it, it feels like it's going to be a big decade for our world. That might just, you might think that's hyperbole, you might think I'm making it on. It feels to me like there's important stuff going to happen. Big things will happen in the 20s. A couple of lessons that I've learned. No amount of progress is going to redeem us. No amount of technological advancement is going to redeem us. No amount of dodging life is going to save us. We're going to need in these next 10 years to find a God who's going to get us through. My encouragement, scream to him when you need help. Rest in him when you're tired. And I promise, because he promised, that that'll be enough and you'll be okay.